Alrighty, good morning. If you do not know me or if you're new here, my name is Chris Cox. Um, I am uh, not a pastor here, but a seminary student. Um, so we are continuing our Sunday School series in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, we are a Reformed Baptist Church, so we hold to this confession, and so we thought it would be awesome to go through the whole year and go through the whole confession, and we'll probably be a little bit behind schedule, um, but that's just always how it is. Um, but today's chapter, I get the blessing, or perhaps maybe the curse, of speaking on free will. Easy, easy stuff, free will, right? We could probably just finish this now and, and be like, yeah, there's, there's no free will, or we say, yeah, there's free will, whatever, and move on, right? No, it's not quite that easy. Free will is, if you have uh, been a uh, Calvinist or you've been Reformed for your whole life or you just became Reformed, you probably had to deal with the question of free will at some point in your life. You've probably had the determinism, free will debate. Uh, Maybe if you were in college, you've had it late night in your dorms. I know I went to Covenant. I had a few of those conversations. Uh, My personal story is that uh, I grew up Southern Baptist. I grew up, I mean, I wouldn't have classified myself as Arminian at that point, but I thought, you know, Calvinists were the bad guys. You know, they, they, were, the, they were the harsh, uh, you know, Christian theologians who all had beards. Sorry, Jacob, I didn't mean to point you out there. Um, who thought they were better than us. Um, but uh, there was an influence on my life that did uh, affect that change, and that was my wife, Mackenzie. I had a couple debates with her, and, you know, I'm not going to say I'm a Calvinist because of a girl, but I'll let you draw your own conclusion. Um, She's she's very beautiful. So, we had a lot of discussions, and then I came to this church, spoke with Pastor Nathan, and ended up thinking, all right, I need to trust what the Bible says. Um, And the confession, I think, accurately displays what the Bible says about free will. So, um, I think it's important to start with saying that this chapter is called free will. And you might think, well, I thought, you know, Calvinists didn't believe in free will. Well, there is a Reformed confessional view or a Calvinistic view of free will. We can say, hey, we do believe in free will. The question is, how is that free will defined? What do we mean by free? You know, what do we mean by the will? Those are the questions, right? So we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and say, no, we don't believe in free will. We do believe in it, but it's defined differently than what you might hear on the outside, um, maybe from the libertarian or the Arminian or the Pelagian camps. Um, so that's what we're going to discuss today. It's, this is not going to be a, I'm just going to hold a debate up here, right? This is going to be, this is what the confession says. This is what the confession argues, and we're going to try to stick to that, because if you had a conversation about free will, you know it can just go, you know, it can get out of hand real quick, right? So, why is this chapter called of free will? So I'm going to argue that this chapter provides reformed guardrails to discussions on human autonomy and the sovereign plans of God, but it's not a thorough treatment. All right, so it's five sections. It's not going to exhaust everything about free will. Right? We've, Christians have been arguing about it for you know, 2,000 years, and there still isn't you know, a, a Christian consensus. Right? So this, this chapter is not meant to exhaust everything, but it's going to provide some guardrails to say, hey, as Christians um, and as confessional Christians, as biblical Christians, these are some of the things we have to affirm 
in order to make our faith make sense. Uh, J.I. Packer famously says that this debate is an antimony that cannot be solved into heaven, until heaven. All right, so there's, there's sort of two sides to this coin where some people think this is unsolvable, that we're just never going to solve it. And then there's some Christians who are like, no, we can solve it. And they work really hard to solve this debate. All right, and I think the confessional approach is somewhere in the middle where it's saying there is always going to be some mystery. And as Christians, if we try to solve every single mystery in Scripture or every single mystery about God, we're probably going to go off the rails. We're probably going to go off the road. And so it's important that we have these guardrails, and the confession offers us that. So whether you believe in, you know, here's some of the different language that we use to talk about free will, compatibilism, uh, determinism, libertarian free will, fatalism, there will always be an unexplained mystery. And I think, you know, I, I got into the weeds on some YouTube debates in preparing for this, and uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was kind of fun, I'll be honest. And most of the time that these debates really don't end well or they don't accomplish anything is because they're always butting up against some mystery. Right? There's always going to be something that's a little bit unexplained. Um, and so this chapter doesn't provide all those explanations, but it provides, again, biblical guardrails, reform guardrails to this discussion. Um, I think it's Bavink, uh, in one of his books, he talks about uh, knowledge and the theory of knowledge. And one of the things that I wanted to kind of frame this discussion is that just because we can't know everything doesn't mean we can't know anything. So just because there's something that's unexplained or we as human creatures can't figure out doesn't mean we can't know uh, for a fact or we can't know concretely that some things are true and some things are right. Um, and that's important with this discussion. Just because we don't know uh, everything about the future doesn't mean we can't say certain things about the future or we can't say certain things about God. The Westminster divine Anthony Burgess says this. He's one of the, the writers of the Westminster Confession. He says, Discussions of free will versus God's free grace have seemed to some even unsolvable, and therefore they advise to captivate our understandings in this point, as we do in the doctrine of the Trinity. However, whether soluble or insoluble or unsolvable, the difficulty argueth the necessity of God's assistance. So we've already gone through the Trinity and we've seen how there are some really difficult parts of the Trinity that kind of escape our understanding, right? One being three persons. And so in the same way, the free will predestination you know, discussion um, has some you know, mystery to it that we have to be comfortable with. Um, and ultimately, we need God's assistance. We need scripture. We need the light of reason uh, and natural revelation. All right? We need those things um, in order to help us understand uh, this difficult uh, discussion. Uh, in terms of the Westminster Confession, there's really no big differences between the Presbyterian Westminster Confession, the Savoy Congregational Confession, and the 1689 uh, there's one little one, but really it's not super consequential. Um, so this is not, this is not going to be a Baptist-specific uh, conversation. So as we look at this chapter, if you guys have your confessions, you can pull them out. There are five paragraphs to detail of free will. And here's the framework. All right? So there's four stages of free will. Often... 
when you discuss or you hear debates about free will, it's just either uh, libertarian free will or determinism. There's no discussion about how that changes throughout history. And so we can go all the way back to Augustine, Augustine, whatever, you know, Floridian, sorry. Uh, we can go back to Augustine and say, hey, he, he outlines that there are four stages uh, that humans have in grace or in redemption in terms of the freedom of their will. And we talked about these before when we talked about the fall of man. Um, I won't, the Latin is the, the posse non pecare, non posse non pecare, those things. But basically, in creation, man was innocent. So he was able to sin and he, he was able not to sin. Um, and then your second stage, you had the fall. You had affected by sin. So now he is not able not to sin. Um, he is only able to sin. He's completely corrupted by the fall. Uh, your third stage, or your section number four in the confession, is redemption, or regeneration, or the period of grace, where we are, uh, our hearts are regenerated, our hearts of stone are turned into hearts of flesh, we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we are now under grace, and not under the law. And so there's a difference in what our wills can do. And then finally, there is a consummation of glorification where, as Augustine says, we are uh, not able to sin. Uh, we have been perfected. It's something even different and better than what Adam was in the garden. And so our discussion or, or the confession's uh, portrayal of free will is that we, our will has different guardrails throughout different stages in, in our relation to the covenant, in different stages of redemption. And so we can't say that our will has the same power and the same freedom in creation as it does in under sin. Or we can't say it's the same in grace where we are now, but we still fight sin as it is in glorification. All right? So the biblical understanding of free will is that our will has different, uh, that, that the freedom is different in these different stages. Um, Augustine says this, of these four different stages, the first is before the law, the second is under the law, the third is under grace, and the fourth is, uh, is in full and perfect peace. So our confession is going all the way back to Augustinian Christianity and saying there are four stages in humans' will uh, toward, um, or in humans' power of the will. I know we just rushed through that. Any, any questions in that regard? to the structure of the confession. Yes, Pastor Nathan. I mean, uh, just obviously the confession is following kind of periods of redemptive history and the changes within man and woman before the fall, after the fall, after regeneration, and then, of course, glorification. And I just really appreciate how you brought out Oftentimes we just talk about free will, and we don't define who we're talking about or what stage in redemptive history or soteriological history, personal redemptive history that we're speaking of, and, and that's why so often we can talk past each other. Absolutely. I mean, and the amount of talking past each other, that happens every single time. Probably like 100% of the time in these debates, um, there's constantly this talking back, uh, talking past one another. Uh, yes, Ben. So, are you saying if you don't get saved, you 
So Ben is asking if you are not regenerated, you are not saved, if you stay in that second stage. Uh, yes, I think that is the assumption, is that you would stay, uh, it would be Romans 1, right? You are suppressing the truth. Um, you are enslaved to sin. Um, so you would not move into that period of grace, um, in that, into that period of where you can will something spiritually good until you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Um, and we'll get to that a little bit more as we go through these paragraphs. And you'll see kind of the difference between that second section and the third section. Yes, Karen. To tail off this question, I never thought about what he, what he just asked. And I'm, so I'm thinking of someone who's not saved, but say they have a temper. And they realize it's not good. And so they do concentrate more on it. And they don't blow off while they have a problem. So in that sense, it might look like they're not sinning. Um, able to control some things. So what do you do about that? Yeah, so you're so Karen's asking, you know, with that second stage, maybe I'll push that question just a little bit because I'll, I'll answer that because that's going to involve spiritual good versus you know civic good, or uh, you know, we're not. I'm not saying that I don't think confession argues that you know, non-Christians can't do any good. They can do good, but the question is whether it's spiritual, moral good, mostly in regards to salvation and you know just regular civic good. Uh, but we'll we'll get to that more. That's a great question. Uh, yes, Ken. Okay, so kind of going a little bit further um, in the section on redemption, the freedom of the will changes so that they are able to not sin. Is that what they would say? Yes. Yeah, so you're at your ten uh, ten. First person converted. Now, not a slave, sin. But would they go so far as to say yes? Now they have the ability. Yeah, I think I think they could. Yeah, I think confession and scripture would argue that in glorification or in heaven that we will not be able to sin. That there will Yeah, still on earth. Converted. Oh no. Uh, sorry. So in the third stage, we do wrestle still. That there is a war. But it, it's in terms of we have still spiritually done the best good, which is becoming a Christian. By repenting and believing and having faith, that's the spiritual good. But the freedom to not sin. Uh, so maybe I'll push your question because we will get to that. We will get to that. I just I want to keep moving. Though. Yes. Yeah. So the third stage is probably the most confusing because you're like, wait, we're under grace, but why do we still sin? And so I will. I will talk about that. I will get to that. So, Because, absolutely, that's probably one of the biggest questions. Because we get the, the understanding of like, oh, under, after the fall, we're all under sin. And in glory, we're able not to sin. But what about that middle? How do we approach that? So, I will get to that. Let me, let me start with uh, the confession, chapter number one. There's a general statement about man's will. So, basically, like every... Uh, chapter in the confession, it starts with that intro. It kind of says, here's what we're talking about. It outlays um, kind of where we're going. So it says, God hath endued the will of man with the natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. All right, so 
couple things here. Whatever freedom or power the will has is endued by God. So the confession starts with God. It doesn't start with man. It starts with God. Whatever man is, he has received from God. So right there, that frames the discussion away from maybe the Pelagian point of view. That whatever, we, whatever freedom we have is still given by God. It's still created by God. It's still um, guarded and, and hedged in by God. All right? I think that's important that you start with that. That right away, and when we're talking about the four stages, all of that is God-centered. It's God-given. It's God-ordained. It's God-decreed. And then liberty is limited in the confession to what is natural. So it's natural liberty. It's not just generic liberty. It's natural liberty. It's according to nature. In other words, man has liberty, but within the confines of God's created nature for him. So if we have natural liberty, nature means it's something created for us, right? Nature just didn't appear out of nowhere, right? God created our nature. Uh, To be natural is to be caused. And so when we're thinking about our liberty or we're thinking about our freedom, again, that's given to us and created by God. Yes, Pastor Nathan. That's a great point because you think of like, for example, we don't have the free will or the liberty to be more than one place at one time. And that is because we are bound by the laws of nature, right? We are we're not omnipresent. We can't be here at church and at home at the same time. Now to say I can't be at two places in one, does that mean I don't have free will? I mean Understanding nature and the, the liberty that God has determined, just a, a, again, according to his decree, according to his sovereignty, is part of this equation. Mm-hmm. Part of trying to figure out what we mean by free will. Otherwise, we can confuse categories again. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, I think, if you're in discussions with someone who you know, does disagree, you can say, like, everybody limits human freedom at some point. Natural law, um, you know, gravity, right? I mean, no one would assume that, you know, oh, I have the freedom to fly, right? Unless you see me play hoops and you see my vertical. But, you know, besides that. (laughs) But we always have limits to our freedom. And so the, the discussion of, you know, free will really involves moral freedom. Do we have the freedom to only do good and to will good? Um, so, Yes. Uh, number three, the necessity of nature, when it talks about uh, we are neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. I remember reading this paragraph and thinking, well, did it just uh, negate itself? Because it says it has, the man has natural liberty, but then it says, nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. But as we read that, um, it's important to understand that what the confession is saying is that when we were created, we weren't created to just do good or to just do evil, right? Adam had a choice. He had a true choice. He had a free choice to do either one. Um, and so in our, and we'll talk about that in the next section, man in his, in his innocency was able to do good and evil. He was able to do both. So that's the intro. And, and as you can see, we already, I'm sure there's lots of questions Brewing, um, but maybe it'll get a little bit more clear as we kind of move through these four stages.
So let's look at the second, or sorry, the first stage, but the second paragraph. Man in innocency, mutable. Man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which is good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was unstable so that he might fall from it. Uh, so this is actually the one, I think the one change that the 1689 makes with the Westminster. And it's not, not a super consequential change, but essentially I think the confession says uh, was mutable. Actually, I should have put that on the slide. But either way, both of them say, Westminster and the 1689, say that man could change. Right? And remember our doctrine of God in chapter 2, one of the defining uh, attributes of God is that he is immutable, that he's unchangeable. And so when we look at the creator to the creature and that distinction, the biggest distinction is that man can change. He is mutable. And so this is the case. Even when man was created, he was created perfect. He was created upright. And yet, he wasn't God. He could change. Now, that doesn't... Oh, yeah, go ahead, Pastor. I was going to say, could you define the state of innocency? Are we talking about, for example... Yeah, so I think the innocency in terms of creation means that he was uh, guiltless, that he did not have guilt yet, right? That he had not performed an act of evil, and so that uh, under the covenant of works, which we had talked about, that he was not, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, hmm. Forget it. Uh, that he was not, what, what's the word? Uh, to be condemned. That he was not condemned by the covenant of works. Is that kind of what you're thinking? No. When is this free will? What is this talking about? Say that again. In the state of innocency, when, what period of history are we talking about? Oh, before the fall. Is that what you're... So, yeah, so you're, you're saying that this is referring to before Adam and Eve sinned. Yes. So this is not something that is still ongoing, this statement. Yes, okay, I see, I see what you're getting at, yes, okay. the innocency here after the fall. Yes, great point. I, I see where you're coming from. Okay, so yes, this state of innocency is before the, pro, before the fall, pre-lapsarian. Um, so it is Adam and Eve before they had made the choice to eat uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, so in terms of the difference between uh, Adam and between maybe a child, right, is that child assumes or receives the guilt of Adam's sin, uh, which that's the covenant headship that we kind of talked about. Does that, does that solve the question there? Okay. So make sure, because we don't, so that we don't interpret this as, oh, well, this is infants, this is children before they come to a particular age, they're still in the state of state yes. of so it would be created in a state of innocency, but not born in a state of innocency. Innocency. It's a tough word to say. Uh, but this is, this is the great mystery, right? This is, uh, you know, if there's anything we can't solve today, uh, why did a perfect, sinless Adam, who had the freedom to sin or not to sin, choose to sin? Or as uh, I think Renahan says down below, uh, the confession does not seek to address the difficult question of how a good being can fall, it simply asserts that he could fall. 
So there's a mystery, right? Um, we can't, I mean, we know, and the confession upholds, and I think scripture upholds that Adam was responsible for his sin, that he had a free choice to make that sin. Um, and yet, how did that happen, right? None of us know what it feels like to be created innocent, to not have any stain of sin in us, and yet make that decision. Um, leans on chapter 6 1. Uh, God created man upright and perfect, yet he did willfully, his will chose to fully transgress the law of their creation. And then it says later in that chapter that God permitted this for his own glory. Again, this is what this is clearly from scripture, and yet it doesn't make things easier for us, right? It's still difficult, it's still hard to understand. Um, but if we try to solve that, we're going to run into issues. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29 says this, truly, I have only, truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So it's clear that before the fall, when God created Adam and Eve, that they were upright, that they were uncondemned, that they were um, not condemned by the covenant of works, that they had uh, fulfilled that, and yet they chose to sin. Um, that's a great mystery. Any, any questions there? All right, I'll move along. Uh, Nehemiah Cox, I'll just say the bottom of this quote. Uh, he says, Fallen man by their own wickedness determined to sin, and that only, yet they are free in their choice thereof. So there, th- this is where we have the very difficult question of how is man responsible for something God determined. Um, we see this pretty much through every Bible story, right? That God works through man's decisions. And God even works through sinful decisions um, in a different way than he works through righteous decisions, but he still works, he still decrees, he still determines. Um, and so we see this tension upheld in Scripture constantly, that man is responsible for his action, that man made that action freely, and yet God determines all things. Any questions on that? All right, I'll skip that. Um, we're going on to number or chapter three, which is the second stage of man. Um, so this is after the fall. So before the fall, man was created innocent. And then after the fall, we say that man was totally unable, or he had total inability. Total inability to what is the question that this paragraph is going to answer. Man, by his fall into the state of sin, has wholly lost all ability to will, of, sorry, of will, to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good, and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself, or to prepare himself thereunto. So this is getting to the question, I think a couple of you were kind of asking this question, right? What does it mean, um, I, think, I think Karen and Ben, you guys asked this question, like, what does this mean? Does this mean that natural man, that man after the fall can't do any good, that they are as bad off as they can be? No, it doesn't mean utter depravity, it doesn't mean utter inability to any good, right? It means that they can't will any spiritual good, and that spiritual good is preparing your heart for salvation, right? We can't do that ourselves, we can't. Uh, repent and believe by the power of our own will. And so this is probably where the discussion gets the most stark between, you know, 
the Reformed or Calvinistic view or the Augustinian view and the Arminian, Pelagian, Open Theist, um, Socinian, all those views, right? Is that man cannot will, he doesn't have the freedom of his own will to prepare himself or to attain salvation by his own work. And that's what the confession brings home here. He can't will any spiritual good. So, he's confirmed in unrighteousness except by the miraculous, merciful work of God. And we'll, Chandler, I think, Chandler, are you going next? Chapter 10? Yeah, so chapter 10 is going to nail this down, right? The effectual call of God. The effectual or the irresistible call of God upon the human's heart um, is required for us to attain salvation. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's, this is not the only place in Scripture, in John 8 as well, there is this enslavement to sin. And what's understood in enslavement is that you can't get out. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a slave. Right? A slave needs to be freed. So actually, let's, let's turn to John 8.31. And maybe I'll ask a volunteer to read it. John 8.31 all the way through verse 35. You want it? Yeah. All right. Ethan's got it. Go ahead. Read it whenever you get there. Right. So Jesus said to the Jews, Who has believed him? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered then, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. And I'll read the, the last verse there. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Alright, so here we have that stark difference between those under sin, enslaved, and that the only way to be free is through a miraculous work of the Son, right? Obviously, on the cross, and then through the Holy Spirit regenerating the heart. Um, so, Second Corinthians three fourteen as well says, "Our minds are hardened, and the veil remains unlifted." So again, throughout Scripture, there's this constant refrain that it is the Spirit's work, that it is God's work on the heart. That salvation always comes from the Lord, like it says in the Old Testament, um, and that there is nothing that we can bring to that equation. Um, God gets all the glory. We get none of it. Any questions on that? Yes, Jacob. Uh, just to expand with the distinction you were making, I think um, the strong man
The greatest work, you could say. Yeah, yeah. The greatest spiritual good, moral good would be repenting and believing in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Good comment. Yeah, Pastor. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Uh, so, when we talk about a good work, we can talk about civic, earthly, physical good that believer and non believer can and might do. Yeah, there you go. Set you up well. When we're talking about works that are pleasing to God, faith must be present, it must be done ultimately. For the glory of God. And so, um, Karen, you'd ask about, okay, someone who's, who's struggled with sinful anger and a non-believer, can they perform themselves? Absolutely they can, but that's mostly on the outside. Um, in some sense, they can perform what's going on, but they can't perform their own heart spiritually. So, there's an outward good, there's an inward good, there's a civic good, there's a spiritual good. So, the confession obviously is honing in on faith, to the glory of God is what's ultimately necessary to do anything that's pleasing spiritually to God and natural man apart from salvation is unable to do that. Yep, great comment. And that's why it says, uh, lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So it gets really specific, right? It, it doesn't want to say they're just, you know, the natural man can't do anything good uh, because, and, and good is relative, right? That's, that's the biggest thing is that you know, we could say, oh, that's a good person over there, uh, but we're always talking about relatively. You know, well, he's not, he's not a murderer or he's not an adulterer or something like that, at least openly, right? He seems like a good person. So there is this distinction between spiritual and civic good. Um, there you got the American Red Cross. They're doing great things, but we wouldn't say they're doing spiritual, spiritually good things. Um, so man can do civic or humanitarian good but cannot perform spiritual good pleasing to God in order to merit salvation or like Pastor Nathan was said, said faith is re- required it's a requirement for good works to please God um, and this is probably the, the critical claim of the Calvinists against Pelagians, Arminians, Catholics Socinians, right can grace be resisted so speaking <laughs> get, what did you say? Does someone raise a hand? Oh, sorry, Jill. Okay, go ahead. Absolutely, yeah. And and Jill's pointing out, right, the, the scripture that talks about even our uh, acts of, you know, our good works are like filthy rags before God. Um, and so that's definitely true with the natural man. You have a question? Oh, okay. Just a scratch. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, remind me of your name again? Charity. Charity. So Charity's uh, saying, is the civic good similar to the common grace, right? That the, the understanding that God, or in the Noahic covenant, right, that God restrains evil um, and does provide some, some good and some order in human society, even though we're uh, wrought with sin. And yes, 
that would be two sides maybe of the same coin. I don't know if that phrase works, but it would be the reason that there is civic good or the reason like America is a great country, right? And, and that's because of common grace, right? That we aren't as evil as we could be. So that's a great distinction. Yeah. So um, I think that settles that. We'll move on to what Augustine says about this second state. Um, Afterwards, when through the law has come the knowledge of sin, um, and the Spirit of God has not yet interposed his aid, man, striving to live according to the law, is thwarted in his efforts and falls into conscious sin, and so being overcome by sin becomes its slave. For For of whom a man is overcome, the law entered that the offense might abound. This is man's second state. So he's quoting uh, Romans 5, 20, which we talked about um, in chapter 6 on the, the fall of man, that there through uh, the law came death, right? None of us, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the law. Um, and this is why the natural man cannot will any spiritual good because he always falls before the law. He can't climb his way back up the ladder. So that's the second state. We're moving, we're moving along. We only got two more states here. Uh, this one is man in grace, freedom from bondage. All right, so this is after a man has, uh, after a man or woman, right, has had his heart regenerated by the Spirit of God, that God has called and elected him um, to salvation. So this is once, uh, this is us today. We are in this stage. If you are a member of this church, you have been baptized, you have repented and believed, you are in this state um, of freedom from the bondage of sin. All right, so what, the question is, how does that involve our will, right? How much freedom do we have? Do we not struggle with sin anymore? Can we only do good? Um, Can we do spiritual good? So the confession says, when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin. And by his grace alone, enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but also does that which is evil. All right, so um, you're probably seeing uh, I italicized the remaining corruptions. That's the key two words in this paragraph. That even as Christians, we are under grace. Um, Galatians is clear, Paul is clear, Romans is clear about this. We are under grace. Um, And yet, there's still this, we still do things we no, we shouldn't do. We still struggle with the flesh. We still struggle with sin in our lives. Um, the difference between us and the natural man in the second state before conversion, before salvation, is that we know we're going to win. We're waging a war. We know we're going to win that battle. All right? uh, Christ has secured our salvation. Um, he who begins a good work in us will bring it to completion. I think Philippians. Um, that we do not struggle with sin as those without hope. That we struggle with sin knowing that we are going to win. Um, and we win 
in Christ, through Christ, our union with Christ. So that's the difference between the second stage and the third stage. So that's why the confession says, hey, there's remaining corruptions. We still live in this world. There's some sense of the already and not yet, right? We're, we're there. We've got everything promised to us, and yet it's not quite completed. Yes, Cameron. something spiritually good. Uh, I think what it's referring to when it's saying that is that we have repented and believed that we have faith. Like faith is the greatest spiritual good that we can do. And it's something that we continue to do. We continue to have faith. Uh, we continue to repent. And so that continues to be that spiritual good. I, is that a good way of understanding it, Pastor? Yeah, I think it goes back to what, what, what we discussed earlier that, uh, um, works done in faith for the glory of God. And so, you know, civic good and spiritual good, the distinction isn't so much in the act itself, it's in the heart. God looks upon the heart. And so, yep. we, and it doesn't, it doesn't mean that every good work that we do, we perfectly do <laughs> by faith for the glory of God, you know, for donating blood to the Red Cross. Uh, but that's our endeavor, and that's our call as Christians to do those things to match our outward behavior with inward, for lack of a better term, worship, adoration of God in that good work. Um, to do them both inwardly and outwardly for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And I was talking uh, with a few people, but I was listening to um, a discussion with Dennis Prager, a Jew. Um, and Ben Shapiro also is, is Jewish. And so there's this, you know, they, they're always about outward uh, works an outward showing of repentance or outward um, righteousness and scripture I would say the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is consistently um, concerned with the heart you know like if out of the heart flows all the wickedness and then after uh, grace after conversion right the heart is there's a, a cleansing that happens and so um, the scripture and God is more concerned with our inward uh, heart and focus um, and which kind of comes down to the motive why do we do good works do we do good works to you know receive fame and, and you know hey look at me you pat me on the back or do we do it because we actually truly love people and love Christ I want to serve his people yeah, just a comment too just uh, from that previous slide that said that a man in the fallen state does not have any ability to do anything spiritually good for salvation reminds me uh, of the scripture dead in our sin, and here enabling him to freely will and do that which is spiritually good reminds us that it is Christ who has given us that life again. That is now not fully, you know, made, not fully glorified, but has that ability now to, by faith, do good works mm-hmm. for the glory of God. Yep, absolutely. And that and that's the the we don't have too much time, but that's the great, you know, people say, well, Calvinism's harsh, right? Because there's election and predestination and, and it just seems like he's sending the reprobates to hell, right? But one of the greatest uh, you know, graceful and merciful acts that you know Calvinism does believe is that we persevere. That our will is bound in such a way that we can't undo our salvation. That's a good thing. Um, and so yeah, we can talk about free will. 
but do we, re- do we truly want a free will? Uh, and, and to get ahead all the way to the, the last one, because we've got to hurry. Uh, the last section says, The will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to do good alone in the state of glory only. Um, so that's, this is where like, the rubber meets the road. It's like, well, in a sense, who cares where we're at now? But where are we at in glory? Do we want the freedom to lose our spot in glory? Do we want the freedom to fall from heaven? No, we want to be unchangeable. And so the confession says, hey, we are immutable. We can only do good. And so I think that's one of the questions to, you know, if you're debating this subject, is to say, well, hey, let's talk about heaven. You know, is freedom so important and, and autonomy, self-autonomy so important that you would be willing to be like, well, it's better off to be able to fall from heaven. Because, you know, if we had the freedom to do that, we would do that in two seconds. We'd get there, we'd mess up, and, you know, we're out, right? So we don't, we don't really want true freedom of the will in some respect. Uh, Dick, you had a question? Any last one? No, in the uh, second stage after the fall, you talk about Oh, that's, that, that's a good question. He's saying, you know, is that state of grace in chapter 4, or section 4, is that, you know, a salvific state of grace, right? It's just not a generic state of grace. Yeah, I think, uh, I'd have to think about that one more, but um, I would assume that that's kind of understood, that it's the assumption that a natural man would not be, um, that when it's saying a state of grace, it is stating uh, a special grace, or a salvific grace, like you said, not a common grace. So I don't know. I, I don't. I can't really answer that question because I don't know what they were thinking when they, you know, wrote it. But yeah, can uncommon grace. Well, yeah, that's a good. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, there's common and uncommon. So yes, this is a state of uncommon grace. All right, last one. One other thing. We have a new federal head, and everyone Absolutely, yeah, and uh, Melody's getting at this section takes place in chapter 7 through 20, which is all about the covenant relationship between man and God, and that covenant relationship means we are secured in Christ, and so again, there isn't, we don't have the freedom to leave that, um, and I think that's important to understand. That's the grace, that's the true mercy, because if we had the freedom to leave it, we would, <laughs> you know, uh, we would leave the flock. And Jesus wouldn't come after us, right? No, we are secured um, all the way till the end. So with that, it is uh, 1018, so 
I will finish before. That was, that was you know, that, that conversation could have, we, we could talk about this for four hours. You know, we could be here all day. Um, in fact, Cody, if, I mean, it's up to you. You want to just punt to next week and we can do this for another hour? Um, let, me, uh, let me pray us out and uh, we'll finish. Father, thank you that you are uh, a good father, that you indeed have adopted us um, as sons and daughters of your kingdom, that that adoption is final, that it is uh, unchangeable, and that even though we live still in this um, stage where the, new, the old creation is groaning and, and waiting for final glorification and consummation, that we have a hope um, that is, is stored up um, in a place that you are uh, building and preparing for us in heaven, that you, that our hope is that we will not struggle with sin, that we will not be able uh, to sin, but only to do good, to, to worship you purely from a pure heart um, with no danger of reprisal and no danger of falling. And so, Lord, I pray that, that, would, that we would magnify that truth um, above uh, the foolish truth of, of trying to be free, um, free to in, in our sense, to just do evil. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to look forward to that day when uh, your church meets, meets you, when the bride meets the husband, and, and uh, we are in full um, communion with you, communion realized, um, and that we do not struggle with sin. So, Lord, thank you for these precious truths, and uh, thank you for the men of this, uh, the writers of uh, this confession, the Westminster Confession, for allowing us to see these truths even clearer. Uh, pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.